Well, for the rest of us, this morning we are continuing, of course, in the book of Genesis. So we are in Genesis 4 once again. So I'd like you to turn there with me if you would. That's Genesis 4. Genesis 4, and before I begin, I would like an announcement now. So God willing, um, I will be preaching in Glasgow next Lord's Day uh, morning and evening. Uh, so there won't be any adult Sabbath school class. All the other classes will be meeting. Um, uh, but if the Lord wills that I should be over there, uh, this class won't be. So this will be um, our last class for uh, until the very last Lord's Day of the month. So we take up the Word of God here, Genesis 4. And I know it has been our custom to read the entirety of the text before we uh, actually look at the text in some detail. So I I would like to continue that, but I think for the sake of time, it may be better if we actually read um, as we make our comments so that we're reading the text only once. And hopefully uh, that means by the end of this, this hour, this morning, uh, we may actually get through the entirety of the fourth chapter. So before we begin... I want to set you in the context that we began with. And you remember, as we have been looking at these early chapters of the book of Genesis, our interest has been to follow the text as the text divides itself. So, of course, the chapter divisions that we have and that we know and that we love in our English Bibles came to us through the medieval period. Um, And many times uh, we got it right. Sometimes we didn't. And so our interest here is to understand how does the text divide itself, how are we supposed to understand the principal text divisions, and in doing so, what are the things the text in that particular literary unit, what is it that's truly being emphasized by the inspired writer? And so as we have that kind of concern, you'll, you'll remember back now months ago, we said the book of Genesis divides itself really in ten ways. And the way that we understand the book divides itself is By using that simple phrase, the generations of. In the Hebrew, the word is toledot. And that occurs ten times throughout the book of Genesis. And as you look at that, you'll find that the book really has several principal emphases then. In each section divided by this phrase, the generations of or toledot, there are certain narratives that are certainly central. And then there are certain figures within that narrative that are certainly emphasized. Now, we are coming, as we conclude the fourth chapter, to the end of the first principal section. Now, that section begins, as you remember, chapter 2, verse 6, and ends with really the last verse of chapter 4, beginning there again, with the words totally do it, in chapter 5, verse 1. So, we are coming to the end of our first principal section. And because we're doing so, I want to spend just a moment here and ask the question, what are the kinds of things that we've seen emphasized thus far? Now, as we've looked at this text, and again, I'm referring here to chapter 2 all the way to the end of chapter 4, what you have here, of course, is man. Man is, in many ways, central. He's certainly not the central figure. But the activities of man certainly loom large in the text. And so how is man portrayed to us in these chapters? Well, if you look at man, first of all, you find him as a creature. Man in creation is certainly emphasized. But then as you move through chapter 2, it's not just man as he's a creature. But you remember, as man is placed into a garden, a garden that has with it special provisions, special promises, 
We recognize man is not only in creation, but he is also a man in covenant. And then as that theme continues, you remember as we come to the third chapter then, especially that first part of the third chapter, we find man not only as he is in creation, not only as he is in covenant, but man as he is in rebellion. The inspired writer is putting before us man as he steps into these various roles. And finally in the third chapter you have man in rebellion, and at the end of the third chapter you have man in ruin. And that's how we've seen the text thus far. The first section, I, I hope, I hope the, the weight of this hits us, the first section of the inspired word of God, this is how man is presented. Man a creature, man in covenant with God, man in rebellion, and then man in ruin. Now as we come to the fourth chapter, you'll notice here that this is still part of that same section. The section does not break at the end of chapter 3. And the significance of that, I think, hopefully in the last few minutes of our time this morning, we'll we'll be able to consider that. But as we look at the fourth chapter, the fourth chapter even further divides itself. Uh, So as you're looking at the fourth chapter, you'll find the first 15 verses, of course, are preoccupied with the narrative of Cain and Abel. And then as you move verses 16 and 17, you have the genealogy of Cain. And then from 17, well, really from 16 and on, you have the genealogy of Cain, but then there's even a further subdivision in that genealogy that deals with Lamech. And that begins in verses 19 and goes to the the 24th verse of our chapter. And then verses 25 and 26, as we've already seen, you have the resumption of that line, a return to Eve and what she says with the introduction of Seth. And so the fourth chapter divides itself fairly easily into those four sections, Cain and Abel, Cain's genealogy, Lamech, and then the introduction of Seth. So I want us to look at the text according to those divisions. And so in order to do so, I want us to begin here with that first section that begins here, chapter 4, verse 1. And Adam knew his wife Eve, sorry, knew Eve his wife, and she conceived, and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Now friend, again, as we've said before, at this moment we should, we should stop And just see how interesting this is that Eve is the one who's speaking here. And know what she says. She has gotten a man from the Lord. This is something that the Lord has given her. Eve has no confusion at this point. Procreation is of the Lord's mercy. And is only of the Lord. I will come back to that in a moment or or two. But know that just for the time being. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. We'll stop there just for a moment. Of course, in these early early verses of chapter 4, we're given a picture of both sons. Not only their names, but also their occupations. And principally, and again, this is something that should strike us, principally, we also have their behavior as they worship God. And not only that, not only do we have their behavior, but we have their acceptance with the Lord, or in Cain's case, the lack thereof. It's a striking thing, isn't it? The first children that are born in creation, these are the things that the text emphasizes. Their name, their occupation, and how they conduct themselves in the worship of God. 
Well, as you look at verse 4, you'll notice, of course, that it is Abel who is accepted. It says here, and the Lord had respect unto Abel and his, off- and his offering. As you look at ancient translations of this text, um, those translations that would come directly from the Hebrew, so thinking specific- specifically of Theodosian, you'll find actually the words translated here, and the Lord consumed the offering of Abel. The idea there is, and Jerome, even in the 4th century, believed that this was quite an appropriate way to translate the word from the Hebrew. The the idea is is very much what you have given to us, perhaps more famously, at Mount Carmel, where God sends fire down from heaven and consumes the offering. Very much that's potentially the case in our text. How was it that Cain and Abel knew that the Lord had accepted Abel's offering? Well, the word in the Hebrew bears out the possibility that it was the fact that the Lord sent fire down to consume that which had been offered. Now, why is that significant? Uh, It seems rather speculative. Well, as you come to the fifth verse, there there becomes something of an ironic ironic point here in the text. And unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. Now, it doesn't come out very clearly in our translations, but the word wrath there literally means to burn. It means to burn. Now, if it is the case that the Lord was speaking uh, with regard to these offerings, his acceptance or his rejection in terms of fire, verse 5 reads rather interestingly, doesn't it? Cain's offering was not burnt, but Cain was. Cain was the one who burned, not his offering. And his countenance fell. The the sense here is that he's manifestly enraged. It's not that he's sorrowful. It's not that he's a man who's mourning. He's a man who genuinely, and quite literally from the text, is burning with fury. Now, as you come to verses 6 to 8, which we'll read here just in a moment, you'll notice here that the Lord responds. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? That is, why are you burning? It's a striking thing, isn't it? And why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass that while they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. Now, in the seventh verse, as the Lord is counseling, uh, counseling Cain, rather, you'll have those words, Unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Uh, we'll just take just a moment here to ask the question, what really does that line mean? And there have been two schools of thought, principally, about how we're supposed to understand this text. First of all, some would say we refer it immediately, well, to the immediate antecedent, rather, and that is sin. Sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And so the sense is, sin would desire you, but you will master it. Okay, so the sense is very similar to what you have in Romans 6.12. Let not sin reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Sin is personified, as it were. As something that is reigning, something that is powerful. And here the Lord, some would argue, is saying to Cain, don't allow sin to reign. Don't 
allows him to control your actions at this moment. You reign over it. The other way to interpret this text is to see it regarding Abel. And in this case, we would read it thus. He would respect you and defer to you as elder and as leader. It's important for me to tell you that both senses are possible in Hebrew. Uh, they do seem very different, don't they, in the English. But both senses are very possible in the Hebrew. And I won't really make a decision at this point as to which interpretation I favor. I just want to set those before you. But because in either case, Cain is being told by the Lord, either in the case of sin, sin is crouching, desiring to exercise dominion over you. But if you resist, if you do actually stymie, as it were, its claims to power over you, you will prevail. Or, if he's speaking to Abel, if you do well, if you worship me aright, as elder brother, Cain, sorry, Abel rather, would look to you with respect, would defer to you. Now in either case, of course, you have in the 8th verse, Cain's response to the council. Cain talks with his brother, and what's striking in the 8th verse is, the sense is, it simply has an ellipsis after it. We don't know what Cain says to his brother. It really is left blank for us. And that blank is not because the text is corrupt at all. The blank obviously shows to us very clearly a point of deception. Cain is talking with his brother as though nothing has changed. The sense is he's luring him into the field, just talking casually with him about nothing important. And then he kills him. What's striking about the eighth verse is the repetition of that fraternal relation. Cain talked with Abel, his brother. Again, Cain rose up against Abel, his brother. We know, of course, that Abel is Cain's brother. But what the inspired writer is emphasizing is that fraternal relationship. What Cain does, he does against one who is his brother. It's a striking thing. Now, as you come to verses 9 to 15, you have the Lord's response. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, the word there in the Hebrew is not the same word that you have describing Abel in verse 2 as a keeper of sheep. The word keeper that's used here is the word shamar, or to guard. That is, am I my brother's protector? Am I the one that is called to secure his safety? It's a striking question, isn't it? Now, as you come to verse 10, the Lord responds. And he said, Why, what hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid. And I shall be a, fu a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. And it shall come to pass that every one that findeth me shall slay me. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain lest any finding him should kill him. Now, friend, I want you to notice in the 10th verse what the Lord says. 
It's interesting here. The Lord describes Abel's blood, personifies Abel's blood as something that is crying. Throughout the scriptures, this word is going to be used to describe cries of distress, cries of injustice, cries of the oppressed. The Lord is saying, I've heard your voice, King, but it is the voice of your brother's blood that cries even louder. You won't confess, but your brother's blood, it incriminates you. It declares you guilty. And then you have in the 12th verse that sentence. Now, you have the words fugitive and vagabond repeated twice. The word fugitive very much carries with it the idea of a man who is incriminated, a man who is marked. But the word vagabond really has in view the idea of a wanderer, somebody who is homeless, a true nomad. Now, as we look at the text, and as you just look briefly at what you have in the 17th verse, you do see something of attention. Cain, described as a wanderer, but in verse 16 he builds a city. So how are we supposed to understand the word vagabond, the idea of wandering, or the idea of Cain being a nomad? Well, I think the best way for us to understand this is how the word is going to be used throughout the rest of Scripture. The word vagabond here does not necessarily mean a literal nomad. Throughout the Scriptures, it will describe anybody who wanders, not only physically, but even spiritually. Just to give you an example, it relates to those who wander both in sin, but also it can be used to describe those who wander, that is, those who are, as it were, set loose in their morning. These two things are come unto thee, says Isaiah, who shall be sorry for thee? Desolation and destruction, and the famine and the sword, by whom shall I comfort thee? What's striking about that, in verse, in Isaiah 51, 19, the word, who shall be sorry for thee, is actually the word for vagabond in our text. Who shall be a mourner for thee? I think that's perhaps the best way to understand this idea of being a vagabond, a wanderer. The Lord will send him out, and he will send him out mourning all of his days. Spiritually, he will be a wanderer. Spiritually, he'll be a nomad. Sure, he can erect cities. Certainly, he can build homes. And maybe in that sense, we wouldn't consider him a wanderer. But in every other regard, he certainly is. He certainly is a vagabond. In verse 14, you have really, I think, the evidence that that's how we're supposed to take the text. You have here Cain reflecting on this punishment, and here's his interpretation. Not only will he be driven from the face of the earth, but from the face of the Lord. That's striking, isn't it? Here Cain sees his punishment at this moment as principally tied to the Lord. Now, as you look at verse 16, I know I haven't read it just yet, but look down just with me to those lines there. We are given something of an interpretation of what this means. Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. That is, out from the face of the Lord. And what does that mean? And dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. The sense that the text gives us here is, in many, in many ways, very, I think, very simple. What the Lord is saying is, you are going to be driven from the place that you currently inhabit. Well, where, where does he live? Well, the apparent, apparently, according to verse 16, he's not far from Eden. Yes, of course, he's not in Eden, 
No man is in Eden after man's expulsion, but he's close to it. And the idea is that to be close to Eden, according to verse 16, is to be close to the presence of God. And as we use that phrase throughout the scriptures, that presence of God, we understand it's the place of corporate worship. So the temple is called. So the tabernacle is called. And so the idea is the closer you are to Eden, the closer you are to corporate worship. The closer you are to the external means of grace. And so when Cain is driven from the Lord, where is he driven? He's driven away from Eden. Driven away from the presence of the Lord. We'll keep that thought before us. Uh, Let's hasten here to verses 16 and 17. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod, on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch. And he builded a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And unto Enoch was born Erad, and Erad begat Mahujiel, and Mahujiel begat Methusiel, and Methusiel begat Lamech. I, I won't make any comment other than to say this, that this sets for us the beginning of a pattern that will be throughout the entirety of the book of Genesis. The reprobate line, or the reprobate genealogy, is given before the elect. I want you to note that. The reprobate line is always given first. Always given prior to the line of the chosen, to the line of the church. So Cain, his genealogy is given before Seth. Ishmael is given before Isaac. Esau is given before Jacob. That will set for us a paradigm. I will just note that now, but we'll certainly be considering it later as we continue through the book. But I want to direct your attention now to verses 19 to the end. And Lamech took unto him two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and to the name of the other was Ziba. And Ada bare Jebel. He was the father of such as dwell in tents, and of such as a cow. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all such as handled his part or an organ. And Zila, she also bare Tubal Cain, an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron. And the sister of Tubal Cain was Naama. Lamech said unto his wives, Ada and Zila, Hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech. Hearken unto my speech, for I have slain a young man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech, seventy and sevenfold. What I want you to notice before we go to verses 25 and 26 is that you have here really not so much an interruption in Cain's genealogy, but really more of an explanation. We're not just given names and occupations. We're told the kinds of people that come from Cain's line. And the song of Lamech, because that's really what it is, in verses 23 and 24, it's one of the most remarkable pieces of Hebrew literature you're going to find. It rhymes, first of all, which is really striking. And then on top of that, one line is followed by a parallel without any interruption. What are they singing about? What is this line lauding? Violence and the increase of it. This is telling us not just who is, of course, the progeny of Cain. It shows us that they have followed Cain, their father, spiritually as well. This is a line where you should not expect the church of Jesus Christ to grow. We come, uh, verses 25 and 26, to these words. And Abel knew his wife again, and she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God said, She hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. 
And to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Just briefly, I know we've already meditated on these two verses before. Let me just call your attention to what we've said before. Uh, first of all, I want you to notice how Eve returns to the narrative. She describes herself as having a son instead of, or in place of, Abel. What's striking is she's really disregarding the line of Cain, isn't she? Of course she has descendants through Cain. But she doesn't see them really as belonging to her. It's a striking thing, isn't it? She ties herself with Abel the martyr. Abel the one who was accepted of the Lord. And not Cain. Though Cain was physically her son. And then of course in verse 26 you have the phrase. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. And this of course we refer back to the idea of revival. This is the time when the Lord grants specially that heart to call upon the name of the Lord, just as Abel had done and was accepted before. Now the Lord resumes his worship, and he does so graciously after great affliction. We'll close with just a few theological observations. And before I do that, I need to show you just some things that perhaps uh, we, we don't think of um, because we often isolate the fourth chapter from the third. So, so let me draw your attention just to a few parallels that hold together these, these, this third and fourth chapter. First of all, in 3.9 and in 4.9, you have both the Lord coming to man after he sinned with questions. This is the omniscient of God. Of course he knows what's been done. But in both cases, he comes asking the question, and then, perhaps most obviously, in 3.16 and in 4.7, you have literally, word for word, a repetition of a phrase. Uh, so verse, what you have there is, Unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. That's first spoken to Eve, and then the Lord speaks that back to Cain. We need to understand that that's crucial. Uh, according to the inspired writer, we're supposed to see this parallel. Now, Friend, whichever we we take, we take this reference with regard to Cain, you need to understand here that the Lord is saying something very clear. If you continue in sin, you will find, as Eve has, your liberty lost significantly. You will be brought under significant dominion. And then, strikingly, in 3.24 and in 4.14, there's also that sense that the Lord is driving them away. That's part and parcel of their sentencing. 3.24, Adam drove, Adam is driven from the garden. 4.14, the Lord drives Cain from the face of the earth and from his presence. There's also certain thematic parallels. You have temptation, fall, followed by a sentence. And both chapters 3 and 4, those patterns continue. And then strikingly, in both cases, the ground is cursed for the sake of man. First case, Adam. But then, of course, as we look, as the Lord speaks to Cain in verse 11 of chapter 4, the ground again is cursed. Now, those are parallels, of course, similarities, but there are dissimilarities as well. And these are striking. Eve succumbs to the wiles of the serpent. But note this. Cain... He rejects the Lord's warnings. 
The, the serpent comes to Eve to tempt her. And she succumbs. To Cain, the Lord comes to counsel him against temptation. And he rejects the Lord. It's a striking thing, isn't it? But then secondly, you have the idea here that in the first case, it was Adam who heard the voice of the Lord in the garden, and he hid himself. In the fourth chapter, it's the voice of Abel's blood that is heard. And in fact, what's striking is in that text. He says, the Lord speaking to Cain. He says, the voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. In the original, the sense is, listen, the voice of thy brother's blood. Hear that voice. Adam heard the voice of the garden and was afraid. The Lord turns to Cain and he says, hear the voice of your brother's blood. Now, theologically, there are a few things we can say. First of all, as a Luke King, we need to recognize he really is for us the first excommunicate. Uh, it might be a striking thing for me to tell you, but, but as you look at the text, again, Cain emphasizes the fact that he is driven not only from the earth, but from the presence of the Lord. Okay, so again, directing your attention to verse 14. From thy face, verse 16, from the presence of the Lord east of Eden, away from the worship of God's people. And manifestly, Cain is going to see himself so distinguished from whoever is walking on the earth at this time that he says his, his punishment will set him apart radically. He is really an outcast. And an outcast, we ought to understand here in a spiritual sense. And this is, this is the way the New Testament treats Cain. I mean, just take Jude 11 for a moment. They have gone the way of Cain, speaking of apostates, they have gone the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and punished in the gainsaying of Korah. But striking is, Cain becomes for us the proto-excommunicate in the New Testament. The man who first knew the Lord by some profession, even by some engagement in corporate worship. And then he is driven out, just as Balaam is driven out, just as Korah is driven out in punishment. You have here the case of the first man driven out from the Lord's people, driven out from corporate worship. We're also supposed to note here that there is a further descent of sin. Cain is a wanderer, not in a literal sense really, but in a spiritual sense. He's a wanderer. And what you find here is, as you read through chapter 4, Cain's infamy goes before him. That's even embodied in Lamech's, in Lamech's song. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. And what the writer is showing us here is, it's not just that things remain static after the fall. Sin continued its ravages in humanity. And we're supposed to recognize the gravity of that. But then finally, and... And friend, this really brings us back to the question, why is it that we're so concerned to, to hold together the literary divisions that the text itself brings to us? Let me ask you, what do we gain by holding the third and the fourth chapters together? What, what is emphasized by holding these two chapters together? Just take for a moment, briefly, what we see here. By holding these two things together, we find, of course, that in spite of the fall... Man is preserved. The propagation of the human race continues just as God had promised. 
He would multiply men, even after the fall. We have that. But not only do we have that, of course, but the promise of Genesis 3.15 is ensured. As the human race continues, we then have certainty that the seed of the woman would certainly come. When we look at the fourth chapter and we see that propagation, we see, of course, those things continuing. We also see, as we said now weeks ago, in the first and in the last portions of chapter 4, you have the faith in that promise continued as Eve speaks. But even more than that, I think strikingly, you have the worship of God maintained. And not only is that striking, but a sinner can approach God in worship, such as Abel was, and strikingly, he can be accepted of God. Don't miss that. Even after the fall, there is a way for sinners to be accepted of God, even in his worship. Abel sets that truth before us. And so what do we have? A friend, we have here, as we come to the end of the fourth chapter, the establishment of the church. That line through which the people of God will exist. Now, it begins with Abel. That's how Christ regards the beginning of the church and its martyrs. And so it begins with persecution. By holding the third and fourth chapters together, what you have is the descent of sin. And strikingly, strikingly, you have also the reality that the church will be persecuted. The first section of God's word holds out to us the ravages of sin and the fact that the people of God will suffer for righteousness' sake on the earth. Friend, I don't think we should miss that. The inspired writer would have these things be emphasized for us. But not only that, as you come to the end of this section, the self-divided section in the word of God, what does it end with? What's the note that we're left with? Then begin men to call upon the name of the Lord. After persecution and after the greatness of sin and its ravages manifest in Cain's life, the church would be graciously preserved. By holding chapters 3 and 4 together, what do we see? We see that the church will be established. We see that she will be persecuted. Oh, but beloved, she will also persevere. And that by God's grace. In other words, friend, what the word of God is teaching us here very pointedly is, as we hold chapters 3 and 4 together, the ravages of the fall and the strength of God's grace must be kept together. And praise God for it. Amen. Let's, let's close here by returning to the throne of grace together. Let us pray. Our gracious and merciful God, we do thank you that you are a God who has given to us such a word. A word that tenders comfort to your people in this present evil age. A word that shows us not only the depths of sin, but the strength of divine grace. And Father, we do thank you that even now, we hold the same God. Even now, we stand in the same Christ, who has promised always to build Zion. And, O Heavenly Father, we pray then that we would know that even here in Lockerland, even today. Lord, we ask that as we enter into your presence solemnly, Father, we pray that we would know by experience that in Jesus Christ we are accepted. And, Father, we pray that we would know by experience that you are God who is pleased as well to use these means to build up his people, a persecuted people, 
a people hunted and harried by sin and by the world, but a people nonetheless preserved and promised to continue to be so through Jesus Christ. For his sake, then, Heavenly Father, look upon us in mercy. We ask all in Jesus' name. Amen.